Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's, uh, I guess, Tuesday morning, late morning. And I want to start my way back to the Summum Bonum series. I took off a little while because we had all those Gnosim, um catalog talks to do. And after return to the series, Mishpachas Savansky sponsoring of uh, what's the Summum Bonum moving past the Middle Ages. Now, in the, uh, I'm using that term generally meaning after the 15th century. Uh, but it's complicated because here we come, the most important people that deal with what's life after death are not the Nigla people, but the Nister, known as the Kabbalists, the Kabbalim. And people that you and I have heard of to one degree or another, they're the ones who start speculating. In general, I would say most theology, most theology um, in the early modern period and modern period is by uh, mystics, by Kabbalim types. Uh, the problem, of course, with this, and today I want to just say a few introductory remarks. Um, as soon as you get involved with this, it becomes very complicated because, first of all, you have a whole new department of Chazals you have to take care of. I mean, the Zohar. Let me put it this way. Suppose you're a medieval philosopher, Sadigon, the Rambam, whoever, even uh, the Ramban in his, in his writings, because uh, Ramban, in his time, Ramban died in 1270, 1273, something like that. And the Zohar doesn't come out of the closet, as they say, until like 20 years later. So um, when you deal with people like that, Kuzri, whoever, so they're tested. I'm, I'm just telling my opinion. It's all I can ever do. As I say endlessly over and over again, and I'll say it again, I'm sure many times in the future. I'm just telling you my understanding. Uh, when you deal with questions like we're dealing with life after death, so in the case of Middle Ages, the task facing the Jewish philosopher, shall we say, the Balmachshava, is to sort of use basic philosophical principles on the one hand, but you have to shtimzuch, they have to, they have to uh, uh, somehow or other coordinate with the various Chazals, okay? Now, the problem is that they're all kind of different statements of Chazal because the Jewish, Jewish religion, and I've said a thousand times, is a Nomian religion and not uh, one of theology and doctrine. Or let's put it this way, mul- there's multiple theology and multiple doctrine, which means there's none. Because if you hold this way and this one holds that way and that one holds the other way and the third one is the third way, then there's no specific Jewish one, there's a set of them. And Lavdaf, you know, even the whole set, just the ones that came out in book form and things like that. And so the task for a, a Kuzri or a Mernavuchim or somebody like that, and Munis Vadeus, Sefer Ikram for that matter, you know, or, or Hashem, and the others, is to take basic uh, principles of logic and philosophy, 
but at the same time, you have to marry them together with the various statements you find in Chazal, meaning in the Bavli, the Yushalmi, the Medrash, the Mechol, the Sifra, Sifra, you know, all the rest of that. I mean, Tanabel Yehu, you know, say Mesecha Sofrim, the whole gamut of classic rabbinic literature, as we call it. I'm, I'm using rabbinic literature in the old term of Chazal stuff. Uh, and how does it match together? So just to take it at a simple level, you know, on the one hand, you tell me that, uh, you know, uh, that uh, after death there's no uh, goof. Uh, seems that way. But there's a million chazals and whatever, and there are psukim in the Bible also, for that matter, depending how you read them, that talk about the goof suffering after after death. So, you know, how do you, how do you work that out? The answer is you got to work it out. Now, you can say it's lav dafka, you can say it's a mushal, you can, you know, you can do whatever you want. I'm just saying you have to take them into account. And so if I were living at that time, or even today, trying to write a safer, which you try to make sense out of all this, I got to know all my chazals pretty well, doggone it, baby. You know, at the very, very least, at the very, very least, I better become a Bucky and a Yaakov. Get what I'm saying? To know all they got. And, and that's the least, because you got to know the other stuff that are in the other Midrashim and so on and so forth, and how they match. And you know and I know there are a lot of different statements that are to contradictory. Or at least let's put it this way, they certainly seem to be contradictory. And you have to work them out. Now once you talk about uh, after the Middle Ages, when the main people who are going to be talking about such matters as life after death or theology in general, even though they wouldn't call themselves theologians, but theology in general are people of Kabbalah. So... Uh, you not only have to make everything work within the framework of the Chazals that I just described, but you also have to throw in the Sefer Zohar, right? Which is huge. And you also run into the problem that the Sefer Zohar has been tampered with. You know, in other words, not everything in the Zohar, even from the from perspective, get what I'm saying? Even from the from me perspective, I'm not talking about those that say that the Zohar is a forgery. I'm saying if you say it's not. Even those that say it's not will say, but not all parts, some parts have been tampered with. So then the question you have to go with, I guess, is this the original? Is this not the original? You know, you get all kind of trouble like that. So there's a host of statements in the Zohar, um, in the different parts of the Zohar, you know, in the Rey Mehemna and and so on and so forth, Medrashanelam and all that, uh, which deal with the Neshama, the Nefesh, what happens after death heaven and hell, the Olamas, and so on and so forth. So, all of a sudden, the task becomes much more um, challenging and huge, especially for the reader. Because if I'm reading a Savior, let's say, for example, from Ramak or somebody like that, which is very authoritative, I mean, I don't know the Zohar stuff, typically speaking, the way you might know the Gemara stuff, if you're, if you're learned. You don't learn that in Yeshiva, you know what I'm saying? So, it's very hard to get, you know, make heads or tails out of all this. That's number one. Do you, you get what I'm saying? No, words, if I see the Rambam says that, uh, you know, when it says, I don't know, Hashem struck Egypt with a hand, it means that he he, he, he punished Egypt. Doesn't literally mean a hand. I know the Pasuk. I know the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. I understand where the Rambam is coming from. But if I see him, not him, but if he's someone else, say, when the Zohar says this and this and this, it means that and that and that. 
I got to go look up the Zohar in the first place if you have one. It's not so easy to find, by the way, because it doesn't really go according to Parsha, you know, and a lot of things are in, in, not in order. And then you got to figure out what's going on, whatever, what the heck he's talking about, which is also very hard because the language is difficult. So let's see, you have a Hebrew translation of it. Uh, which there are some good, there are good, now, today, you and I are living time with her, good Hebrew translations are, but that's the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. It's very far from, you know, being the final understanding of it. And then you see how it fits into the question that we're dealing with, which which is what happens to the righteous after they die and what happens to the wicked after they die. That's just a general issue you have to, you know, to deal with. Second of all, the Kabbalah itself, the way it evolved, uh, especially after the Zohar, is, is funny because there are a fair number of statements about life after death in what I would call the first wave of Kabbalah. But by which I mean after the Zohar came out, let's say, for example, the 1300s and the 1400s. Uh, there are X number of Sfarim that were published and famous people that emerged out of there. You've heard of some of them, Riccanati and others, you know, you, 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 Abu Abu Lafia, you know, there's all kind of people, right? On the other hand, that's all you, you never read it, you certainly never tried to figure it out, is Yechidim that do that, and... And the who actually know what what the heck is going on, um, and so, and then the Ari says that you can't trust what they write. You understand? There are a lot of mistakes in it. It's a famous Arizal. Uh It's it's kind of known that by the time you get to the fifteen hundreds, looking back at the stuff that was written by some famous people in the four in thirteen fourteen hundreds. Uh, there are a lot of contradictions, a lot of things that are unclear, a lot of things that are misleading, which is exactly why a, I don't know how to put this, but they're developed in Tzfas, as I think most people listening to this are aware, a Tkufa, an era, in which it was a grand attempt to um, bring order out of the seeming chaos of ideas and uh, and sometimes transcend them. And uh, the first wave is what we call the Ramak, Ramosha Cordovero. And the second would be the Rizzo. This is like everybody knows that part. But the the Ramak, Ramosha Cordovero, at least the part of him, he wrote a Velt. That's the trouble trying to get a handle on everything he wrote. Um, the only person I know that probably has read all the Moshe Cordovero stuff is probably Noah Shavrik, I suppose. Um, to my knowledge, anyway. And... Um, he tries uh, Moshe Cordovero living in Sfai he tries to, to, to make sense heads or tails out of all the stuff written in the 13 and 1400s and he puts his own spin on him he's Miyashiv and so and so he's like a Rambam shall we put or maybe better yet a Beis Yosef of Kabbalah and he was by the way a Talmud of the Beis Yosef also but he was a Talmud of the Beis Yosef in Nigla you know so he was a student of the Yeshiva in Nigla in this story he was a, you know he, he was uh, probably superior so you, you, that whole notion I just told you is weird because usually if somebody's a Talmud or somebody else, the Rebbe is superior to the Talmud. But when it comes to Kabbalah stuff, according to Kabbalistic tradition, it's not that way. The Ari, for example, for a while, was a Talmud of Rabbi Yosef Karim in the Yeshivan Svas. He was there for a short time, two years or two and a half years. If you look in the Shalos and Shibas of Rabbi Yosef Karim in the Afghas Rochel, you will find one or two uh, Chuvis, written from the Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Yosef Karo, to the student 
named Yitzhak Luri Ashkenazi, otherwise known as the Ari, on some kind of Gemara matter, and also, by the way, to Moshe Cordovero. And it's clear that this guy's the Rosh Hashiva, and that guy's the Talmud. This guy's the Posig, as it were, and that guy's the, the uh, Shoel. However, when it comes to Kabbalistic stuff, then they switch hats. <laughs> and there's even stories there. Yosef Karan went to listen to uh, Dari, you know, lecture on some Kabbalistic topic and fell asleep. But that's like crazy. I would be imagine if Byron Cutler was in Lakeland. There was some guy there was a Macomb. Byron would go to, to this guy. Byron Cutler would go to this guy's apartment on Thursday night to listen to that guy give a whole speech in Kabbalah. I mean, you can't imagine that. Not if you're from Litvish, Yeshiva anyway. But this is what they say happens. So when you enter the world of Kabbalah, especially 16th century, so you get all kind of um, unusual uh, things. Plus, in general, the Kabbalah, especially as it unfolded, at least to me, has always uh, had this character. I remember we're talking about the Summum Bonum. So we're trying to figure out what happened. We're trying to figure out something that's never been experienced by those who are alive, at least as far as I know. And I mean, I know they have these stories as the way it came back, what was it like, and, and so forth. But I mean, really. Uh, so when we're trying to make heads or tails out of all this, the Kabbalah in general, um, uh, in the 1500s, 1600s particularly, uh, it's kind of like a, a weird mix of philosophy, on the one hand, abstract philosophy, and on the other hand, at the same time, an extremely vivid imagery. You understand? You deal with people like the Rambam and Sadi and the others, and they are trying with a great deal of um, discomfort to deal with um, the agaritos of vivid imagery, uh, of which there are plenty. You know, Hashem says, my hand hurts when somebody dies, things like that. Colony Miroshi, Colony Miroshi, things like that. This makes the philosophers very uncomfortable because of the Rabban Shem, you can't say anything physical, which which is true. On the other hand, the rabbinic literature, the Chazal, are full of physical imageries of Rabban Shem, you see what I'm saying? Therefore, they're also full of vivid imageries of Shemayim Baris and Shaol and Shaol Tachtis and... And punishments, like the Ramban speaks about, I, I told you before, when the Shara Gamul, you know, the sun will come out and burn them, and all this, lots of vivid imagery of this uh, sort. And so, what they're trying to do is impose a philosophical reading on all this. When it comes to Kabbalah, there's a different attitude. They certainly are aware of the um, basic philosophical problems. Therefore, they cannot suggest, and do not suggest, of course, there's anything physical about the Rabbanu And yet, on the other hand, we have a physical universe around us, and to me, at least this is my opinion, the Mekubalim were faced with a basic problem, which, if you're a Maimonidin, you simply live with this problem and walk away from it. There's nothing you can do about it. And I've spoken about it in the past. And the problem is this. If you follow through, and let's say the Maimonidin model, then you end up with a situation which makes a lot of good sense, which is extremely unsatisfactory to Haino, Yes, there's a God, um, but I don't even think about him. I cannot. Because anything I can think of in any word I can imagine was created by him, by definition. God has to be that which made everything. Otherwise, anything you didn't make would be another God. So if you believe Hashem Echad, and Echad ve'en yochi ki So there's literally 
nothing you can say about God, and even that you can't even say, so to speak. As the Pasuk says, silence is the only is the only thing, right? And if you want to play games, you can't even do that. So the point is, I can't say, None of that is true. Hashem is not Tov, He's not right, He's not anything. Because any term you can think of, once didn't exist and God created it. So God cannot be identical with any of the things He created. Uh, because as the Rama puts it so well, I think in the in the Yugim Alekrim, you have to define God that is, if nothing else existed, it would still exist. But if it didn't exist, nothing else would exist. That's a mathematical way of saying that God created literally everything. So if that's the case, there's nothing you can say. Okay, now comes Mincha. What am I supposed to, <laughs> who am I talking to? What am I supposed to think? When I have doubt me, I mean, Hashem is just, it, it, I can't do what, 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 what you have to sort of do when you're dumb, which is imagine you're talking to somebody, even the halach is you're supposed to stand like before a melech. I mean, not necessarily a human king, but ep is something. Hashem, I'm talking to you. Second person, you know, I'm having all these conversations where, and, 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 and Hashem is the one who said to do that. Well, let's put it this way. He said to David, and now she gets the doll, said, put it in this form. So I can trust them. They didn't know what they're talking about. So, but how can you do it to a God that you, you cannot even imagine? I'll repeat that you can't even imagine. And that's the from approach. A God you can't even imagine would be the Maimonidean from approach. Because then you're not confusing, you know, God with his Torah with his attributes and things like that, which can't really be true. The Ram says you can only come up with negative attributes. Chesli Kreska says even negative attributes, and I mean, if you want to take it all the way, you know, you can't say, eh, let's put it this way, I can't say God is not, not good. Because even not not good is a created idea, <laughs> so so he can't even be he can't be ascribed to that. So who do I talk to? Who do I dive into when I have tsaris? Who do I pray to? Our ancestors in Egypt. It says, you know, Vatal Shavu Samalhimana Voda. How's it go? Uh, what's the pasuk over there? Vahiba Yamra Hami Vayonchu Bnei Yisrael Mina Voda Vatal Shavu Samalhimana Voda Vayishmalhim and all that kind of stuff. You know that pasuk in the beginning of the story. I mean. What were they talking to? Who were they talking to? You know, uh, besides the fact that how can your prayers affect anything if God is, is is the way I'm describing? And yet, it makes sense. In other words, philosophically, it's true. And so, the Rambam, as far as I'm aware, you know, doesn't solve that, as it were. He says, there's a Torah, you follow the Torah, and the, and the Torah says, among other things, you daven, you bring carbonus, all the rest of it. But, it's not really, you know, God doesn't really live in the base of Migdash, and God doesn't really do this, and God doesn't really do that. But God is the supreme reality. And, but in the Midach Gisa, Hashem gave the Torah on Shavuot. You know what I mean? Hashem took you out of Mitzrayim. Hashem likes, don't ask me to explain, but yeah, Hashem likes the Avos. Right? And so on and so forth. So, I'm left with like a split imagery. You know, on the one hand is unknowable, and the other hand is and all the rest. So, in Kabbalah, they try to do this by saying, well, God created the Spheros, and the Spheros created the world, and then you get into a huge business of what exactly are the Spheros, and, you know, and, and are you diving to the Spheros? No, don't do that. But you're telling me they're the ones that, 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 that are creating the world or running the world or something like that. It becomes a big Rube Goldberg system 
of emanations in which there's the Ain Sof, and then there's the Autumn Kadmon, and there's this and that and the other. And for those who can get into it, uh, it's a whole separate world that you won't find really in the, in, in the Nigla. You see? So that makes it already impossible, not impossible, much more difficult when you start talking about questions of what happens to life after death, or Scharva Onish, or things like this, because you're talking, uh, you know, in this zone, or that zone, and once you have a multiplicity of spheros, then you have a multiplicity of olamos, not olam. So in the regular niggle way, there's, you know, there's the physical world, there's the metaphysical world, perhaps, you know, met- different modes of existence, we can speak in such terms in a sophisticated but rel- relatively simple term, simple way. When you come to Kabbalah, there are endless olamos that one mo- is emanated out of another. That's what they say. Uh, ain't misbar. Uh, for, for, even the person who's not being makobal, which none of us are, I mean, j- you know, just read, um, what am I thinking of? Chaim Bala, Nefesh correct? I'll give you plenty of quotes there, and if you get any of these new editions, you know, they always have the um, Zohar stuff um, in the Aramaic, but translated into Tivrit also. And you end up, you know, you see that there's Olamus and Olamus and Olamus, uh, which you don't find in the Rambam in places like that, or Sadiagon or or Chavos or, or or those sorts. So you see, the emergence of the Kabbalistic way of thinking is very Baroque and emerges in the Baroque era, and it's very complex. And that's not even that word doesn't even do it justice. So don't be surprised they're going to talk about it like this. Well, when the person dies. The neshama, well, there's there's the nefesh and there's the neshama, and then there's this olam and that olam and that silas and the bria and all the rest of it, and it becomes kind of overwhelming unless you're very comfortable with this sort of thing, unless you like it, um, to find where exactly does the uh, good person end up and where does the bad person end up, and the imagery they use is ex- in, in in the kabbalistic literature from the Zohar on, and their reason on the others very physical, very vivid. You know, things like Shvira Sakalim and all the rest of it. Uh, the or the, the, the kudas of the or. But at the same time, whenever you read anything in Kabbalah, there's always an asterisk next to it. You know, like on the cigarettes, the surgeon general says this can hurt your health. Don't take any of this literally. I always say, don't take it. We don't mean any of this literally. But on the other hand, you get so wrapped up, the, the, the imagery is so vivid. Uh... And so uh, powerful that you, you know, kind of forget. You can't help it. You, 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 at least this is my experience. You kind of forget that it's that it's just a, a muscle of some sort or another. It's metaphorical. It's not literal. And you end up with the, in the literality of it. Uh, I think many people, uh, that's, that's what happens to them. It's a little bit like, I always say, it's a little bit like uh, listening to a Sephardi Chazan in one of these real Sephardi synagogues. Where he says each and every word of the tefillah, and after all, you just sit there, you stop talking, you just listen to him. He's saying everything for you, not because you're lazy, but you just get wrapped up in it. You know, he's saying all the words, and you're just following along, and you end up with this business when you see all the different types of uh, imagery. So, and in Kabbalah, especially since there are zillions and zillions of worlds, there really are. So uh, there's an exact niche for every type of. Uh, person, depending on how righteous you were, or how wicked you were. Now, the regular shonim, 
will simply say, since Hashem is a Melcha Mishpat, so don't worry about it. If you davened with extra Kavana, you'll get a better situation in, in heaven. And and you, on the other hand, davened with a little less Kavana, you'll be up there, but in a, in a in a lower spot. You don't mean that physically lower, but you'll be in an inferior spot. And same thing with sins and Averas. You did your Aver with extra gusto, so you'll end up in a worse place in Gehenim, or wherever that is. And you did your sin with less gusto, you know, it'll end up there. But in, in, in Kabbalah, in Kabbalistic literature, they will describe the different places that you'll end up in. Okay? And uh, it kind of reaches a crescendo when you get to, uh, what's his name? The Rishis uh, Chachm, uh, is that it? Where, uh, they, you know, <laughs> they'll really describe hell and the tortures worse than Dante, you know. Uh, and uh, I'm talking about Dante's Inferno. Which was the model, by the way, for the big Makubal that I was talking about yesterday, uh, Ramosh Zakudo, who's among the biggest Makubalim in the 1600s in Italy, who writes a Jewish version of Dante's Inferno, Tafta Aruch, it's called. Uh, look it up. And uh, you know who wrote an article about that, by the way? You'd be surprised. Uh, Armelio Kaplan, like a book review. <laughs> Of tough to Uh see, and, and you will see, just like Dante does. There's different layers of punishment, different layers of, of, of this kind of sinner and that kind of sinner, and the, the adulterer and the hypocrite and this one, that and the other, and it freaks you out. There's a famous story in the history of Near Israel, my yeshiva, where, if I remember correctly, I think the Mashkiach Rab David Krongles, who was legendary back in the fifties, I think, you know, used to have chaburas and vods, and they used to go through famous farm, maral stuff, this stuff, and eventually got around to do, I think, the Rishis Chachma, and the Rishis Chachma, Rabbi Rudiman's like, yes, don't do this, because you'll drive, so you know, you'll terrorize the kids. You understand? Some of the Bacharim will go with this stuff with you, and it's too scary. You understand? You'll, you'll freak them out. Literally. I mean, if you really get into it, a person gets so depressed, he'll commit suicide or something like that. That's where he was coming from. So, um, and yet, none of this imagery is exactly, you know, is true. There's no fire, there's no burning, there's this, that, and the other. But something bad is happening. So, you have the problem with the Olamos, the Spheros, the mixture of philosophy and the imagery. Uh, you have different opinions, especially before the Ramak, on, you know, is God the Spheros? Did he make the Spheros? Things like that, which seem weird, you know, to the regular Nigla type of person. Then the Ramak comes along and tries to work it all out. Uh, so this is just something in general you have to keep in mind when you get to questions about how do the Gedole Yisrael, I would say after the year 1500, deal with these kind of issues. Remembering that, to the best of my knowledge, I'm just sitting here thinking, I think all the people that deal with the questions we're talking about are Mekabalim. Ramchal comes to mind, uh, and others, you know, uh, because they they want to describe in, in, in super detail the different parts of heaven. Uh, I would say in general that uh, they're going to have to sign up, line up one way or the other on the Rambam versus the Ramban, you know, debate, whether what's coming is purely spiritual or is physical also. Is Olam Haba a different state of being, or is Olam Haba this world 
in a more Mary Poppins kind of way. Uh, the Hasidim, I'm sure, will all line up in the Ramban type way. Uh, so the classic opinions they were uh, familiar with, but the way that they framed them is, in my opinion, uh, much more uh, sorry, we're radically sharp and scary, frankly, um, than, than, than what we're used to already. Uh, now, people were interested in what happens to life after death. And they were, of course, familiar with the Rishonim, but these Achronim uh, certainly have what to say. And especially it gets very complicated when you get like to the Ari, who knew Kamal will tell you we're bigger than the Rishonim, so he knows better than them. Because he gets, uh, he's like another Novi. Uh, this is unique that he gets messages from upstairs. Um, you don't find Rishonim Der Chlal ever saying, I'm getting messages from upstairs. Now there is a Ravid, you know, there's, there's a strange one here and strange one there. But Der Chlal, the Rishonim are dealing with Nigla stuff. Um, when you get to the Achronim, early Achronim particularly, not only is it Nister, but sometimes it's Nister based on what they will report is as special messages they get from Shemaya. To me, that's called Nevoah. You're not supposed to use that word. But that, that that's uh, what it boils down to. So I'm sharing with you as I say all this by way of introduction to the Summa Bonum in the uh, future. Uh, and you have to keep all this in mind as uh, we explore different opinions that are out there. Anyway, I've gone long enough for this. I want to thank, as always, Mishpacha Stefanski, which is pushing to uh, to see this uh, uh, series through. And with that, I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.